0: Good evening, everyone. You've created a beautiful neighborhood. Is it on? Can you hear me way back there? Yeah. Yeah. The, good. Louder? Is it all right? What does that mean? (laughs) Good, okay. So our community is rocking along. Uh, I think Mr. Rogers would be proud of the neighborhood we're creating here. Um, And I feel really honored to sit in on interviews with you and uh, as teachers we talk about the earnest efforts and really hard work that you're putting forth so I, I just wanna speak that and honor that as we continue on and so when the Buddha went into homelessness and became a wandering ascetic. What was he looking for? What was he after? I mean, simply put, you might say that he was searching for the truth. But what truth? I'd like to posit that he was searching for the truth in nature. To understand more clearly or completely how nature works, how this creation operates, how it's set up, how it flows, and then finding ways to get in step with, flow with this creation as opposed to fighting it resisting it and that's a lot lar- and in a large sense that's what you're endeavoring to do this week understand nature to a greater depth and find ways to move with it and not resist it so as the buddha went into homelessness and and began his intensive practice, which lasted, according to uh, legend or history, about six years, uh, and, and he became awakened at the end of that time. Um, he spent that time cultivating his heart, sharpening his mind, stripping away the veils that obscured the truth from him. And he ultimately lighted on three characteristics of this life that are common to all of us. And he believed that the understanding of these characteristics on a deep visceral level, not just intellectually, was essential to our freedom and our happiness. And the three characteristics that the Buddha emphasized and taught over the 45 years of his teaching career are anicca, impermanence, dukkha, we've spoken a lot about that, unsatisfactoriness, stress, etc. anatta, the selfless nature of this existence. And I think I heard the vernacular spoken maybe 15 years ago by a famous meditation teacher, Wes Nisker, who summed it up as life is hard, it puts you through changes. But hey, don't take it personal. (laughs) Did I get the right guy? (laughs) So tonight I want to talk primarily about one of these characteristics, and that's anicca, impermanence. In itself, it's a, it's a major gateway to freedom. And if you can establish that deep, visceral understanding of impermanence, you'll know a lot, an awful lot, about the nature of suffering, and you'll know an awful lot about the nature of self or not self. This from uh, Zen Master Dogen. To what shall I like in the world? Moonlight reflected in dewdrops shaken from a crane's bill. To what shall I like in the world? Moonlight reflected in dewdrops shaken from a crane's bill. That little verse, we get a, a feel for the fleeting nature of, of, of this creation. The movement in this creation. That temporary flash of moonlight on a dewdrop sliding off a leaf. I want to read you another poem by Carl Sandburg. And I I like this poem because my backyard, I've got a pasture. And in the fall, um, there's this beautiful yellow covering, goldenrod, I'm not allergic to it, so it doesn't bother me. Some of you might have a different reaction to it. But it's this beautiful kind of covering of yellow when I look out the back of my house. And so Sandberg writes this. I cried over beautiful things, knowing no no beautiful thing lasts. The field of cornflower yellow is a scarf at the neck of the copper sunburned woman the mother of the year, the taker of seeds. The northwest wind comes, and the yellow is torn full of holes. New beautiful things come in the first spit of snow on the northwest wind, and the old things go. Not one lasts. Not one lasts. Those three words carry incredible power if you let them settle in. And coming to that fundamental law of nature, the law of change, coming to understand that deeply, could really say is the core of our practice. And it's a key to peace and happiness. I mean, even on a superficial inspection, It's obvious that everything changes. We all know that intellectually. We look at this little watery blue planet spinning in space at about 1,000 miles an hour. Our little solar system, our sun, our planets cruising through the Milky Way. They estimate about 450,000 miles an hour as a unit. This Milky Way with 2 billion stars in it moving through space together, spinning, at 1.3 million miles an hour. That's a lot of movement. (laughs) You know, the Earth has never been in the same place twice, and won't be. And And then we look the other direction, kind of breaking into the secrets of the atom you know, that, that, the, the tiny world. Um, you know, if you, if you went to Dodger Stadium and took the nucleus of the atom and put it in the center of Dodger Stadium and enlarged it to the size of a pea, around the outer perimeter of the stadium would these, be these small specks of electrons. So not only do we have movement, but we have space. It's a lot of space. You know, Our eyes are crude instruments. They don't see the truth of the way this world is constructed. And that's really just the beginning. If we look into the nucleus uh, more deeply, there are particles coming into being and disappearing by the millions and zillions, moment after moment. And if we look even deeper, it's all just vibrating space. But our eyes deceive us. Somehow the Buddha understood this micro and macro world. You know, Without the aid of any expensive hardware, no Hubble telescope, no electron microscope. But what he did have was close at hand Entirely organic his six senses, just like you're working them this week. Embody in those six senses to penetrate into the components and subcomponents of experience and watch them move. the arising and passing of all of all manner of phenomena. The changing qualities of breath, body, emotions, thoughts, sounds, tastes, smells, everything. Inside and out. So this mindfulness practice, it's it's not so hard. Or at least the instructions aren't so hard, you know. But being with change sometimes uh, is a challenge. It's not so easy. And embodying what comes along with the change. It's not just a single experience. Things change. There often arises a whole constellation of other phenomena, emotions, thoughts, sensations, feeling tones. And on the bright side, you know, a lot of these changes you experience, you readily accept. You know, you've got a head cold, you're just dripping with mucus, and your throat hurts, and, and eventually that changes. You'll take that one. That's a good one. Or you plant some seeds, and they grow. You'll take those changes. Or if you've got a little problem in a relationship, and you find a way to heal it, and it changes. You not like that one. Or a project. Finish it up. It's changed. You like it. That's the joy of change. And on the other hand, as we know, change in its most difficult, unwanted form often comes in the form of loss. read you a poem. I uh, forget the name of this poem. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of, as if one by one the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, <laughs> as far as you can recall. Well on your way to, your, to, to oblivion, where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart." Actually, that's called Forgetfulness by Billy Collins. Anybody know the capital of Paraguay? Come on. Good. I had to look it up and write it down. So, losing your youth, the aging process, losing your health through illness and injury, losing loved ones through illness, death, and eventually yourself. These are the obvious big ones, you know. Not even mentioning losing a loved one in a relationship, or your job, or your car gives it up, or your filling falls out. All the losses, losses, losses. Now, you could also be challenged by what you might call the um, close sibling of loss. That's the gaining of something you don't want. It's like the mold that's growing in my garage now that I'm going to have to attend to. Big project, you know. Digging out the foundation where it is and tearing stuff out. I didn't ask for it but, but I've got it. You know. I have some friends, you know, the economy's not so good. Maybe you've noticed that over the last, what, eight years <laughs> or whatever it is. Uh, whose children, have moved, whose daughters moved back in with a husband who they never liked anyway or approved of, consider him a deadbeat, and their spoiled children. You know, it's like, it's not what they pictured for their golden years. You know? So, some things we lose, some things we get that we don't particularly want. But whatever the difficult change, That's really where the rubber meets the road in life and in practice. And frankly, how you learn to work with unwanted change is the difference between a life of peace or a life of anguish. And so we sit here and we're practicing attuning to these various changes, watching them, watching them rising, flowering, and passing. Story. Um, a year ago, I was, I was challenged with a Well, it's more than a year ago now. Challenged with a significant loss. And so I planned in this year several excursions into nature. And one of them was this month-long hike Uh, on what's known as the Long Trail, which is a trail that extends from Massachusetts. You begin in Massachusetts on the Appalachian Trail. You go north into Vermont. The Appalachian Trail goes east through New Hampshire and Maine, and the Long Trail goes over the backs of maybe a score or more of the tallest mountains in the Green Mountains, and it ends in Canada. And it's a rough trail. A lot of it's really not maintained. It's not like there's It's not like these trails out west where they have nice switchbacks and it's kind of just packed down dirt, you know. These are like, you know, there's no switchbacks and it's like the water runs down the mountain and it erodes away all the soil and you're left with these gnarly tree roots and boulders to kind of clamber over, oftentimes just kind of straight up. So uh, I got a buddy come with me, Chaz DiCapua, who's the resident teacher at uh, IMS. He's about 15 years younger than I am and a technical mountain climber. So I was a little overmatched to begin with. But uh, So the first few days of this trip, getting used to changes. You know, carrying a pack, how that affects the balance, sleeping outdoors, getting rained on, eating trail food out of these packets, you know. And then the, the, the I guess you could say the bone-deep body fatigue of getting used to this kind of activity. But as days went by, it actually started getting easier. You know, noticed some, a different set of changes, some more pleasant changes. You know, the, the muscles were getting a little stronger. Um, doing walking meditation for eight hours a day. You know, did every walking meditation I ever heard of. Um, thought up new ones. You know. you know, I was synchronizing my breath with each step on the uphill. You know, I was counting by twos and threes, forwards and backwards. I was paying attention, kind of scanning my the movement of my body. I was synchronizing every chant I knew, Om Mani Padme Home with each step and gate gate, paragate, para sam gate, bodhiswa, you know. Just on and on. I was getting really concentrated. I mean this these were you know, and it was um it was quite quite an experience, you know. And doing the same thing that you're doing here, kind of recalling the mind gently when it's off, planning, remembering, fantasizing so much, coming back to that direct experience, building that, building that capacity. Mm-hmm. My balance was getting better on the rocks. I'd fallen a few times in the early days, especially when it was raining. Uh, and so this concentrated mind combining with the endorphins, from the intense physical activity and the sweat, you know, it was um, quite magical. You know, there was this unitive experience, that, that's the only way I can describe it, a kind of unitive experience, a complete merging with nature. It was like the whole biosphere was breathing itself, and I was a part of it. There was no inside, no outside. You know just life breathing itself, creation loving itself. The connection was so complete and so beautiful. I'd be moved to, you know, and some of those endorphin flushes and of experience, I'd be moved to to tears. It was just so ecstatic. And then there would be tears of sadness, feeling this biosphere that was me and all the things that were happening to it across the earth, feeling that pain also. But it was uh, a a really beautiful series of pleasant changes. And after some time on the trail, a week or so, a couple weeks, um, there were some other types of changes that started creeping in. There was a tending towards some inflation, There's a lot of this kind of uh, endorphin-saturated experiencing. And some of these newer changes now seemed a little delusional. I had some grandiose thoughts. I mean, part of the reason I did it this year is I just turned 65. And so I got my Medicare card and, you know, yahoo. But I start having these thoughts, well, I could start running marathons again. When I get back in the fall, I'll just pick up and start running marathons like I used to, like 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then I had these thoughts, well, I'll put my headlamp on, and I'm feeling so good I can just walk all night on these trails, see what that's like. And then I'm thinking, well, I can't do it in 2014 because i got things scheduled already. But 2015, I'll walk the Pacific Crest Trail. You know, A little delusional, a little bit. Mm-hmm. So this, this hubris was beginning to arise. And then, I, and then I was convincing Chaz, my partner, well, let's do extra miles today. You know? And he kind of warned me, but he was fine, and I was fine, so we just kept increasing our mileage. You know, and I've totally forgotten I was a Medicare recipient by this time. <laughs> And it's not that I didn't notice this hubris coming up. And it's not that I didn't, you know, know that pushing the mileage up each day would have risks to it. But I was enjoying the adrenaline. I was enjoying the kind of giddiness of the adventure. And then I entered, as you can imagine, the next period of change, where late in the day I sprained an ankle. Not real bad enough to where it swells a little bit, it's a little stiff, you know, next day or second day after that sprain the other one a little bit. And I take this big fall and I land on the right side of my arse on this on this boulder. I get this giant black and blue and yellow thing but luckily, I, it was not the next day but the following day, I fell on the other side of my arse and so I had this matching and I could barely sit down. Now, I don't want you to picture that when you're trying to meditate. And then the tendons in my, in my legs started getting inflamed. I could feel them running up from my ankle to my knee, the tendons in there, get kind of um, inflaming. And the wheels were coming off, basically, is what was happening. And so the changes were becoming more and more unpleasant. The endorphin-driven unity experiences were now replaced uh, by working with these intensified sensations that some might call pain. And they were different sensations, much different than when I'm sitting with a nice pint of Ben & Jerry's Cherry Garcia ice cream. That's a totally different sensation. And so I was slowing down, hobbling, you know, by this point. And uh, it dawned on me, God, you're you're just hobbling along like an old man. And and that was true. I was hobbling and kind of (laughs) old. And so this was my new weather pattern. These challenging... Difficult physical sensations to work with them, and all the things that we uh, encourage you to do, I was trying to do, being with them, being with them with kindness, uh, noticing the the movement in the sensation there'd be a spike, a really strong sensation, then there 'd be a little valley, and in the valley, I could kind of kind of breathe out and relax, get a little. Get a little relief in the valley, and then there'd be another spike. Working with that all day long, you know. And so, after about four or five days of that, and the tendon getting more and more swollen, I realized I wasn't going to make it. You know, this was a, it was a two hundred and eighty mile trip, and uh, I had about a hundred miles to go, maybe a little less. So. With my hubris, I'd overextended my capacity you know, of, of this aging body, and I had to give it up. So I got to a road and said goodbye to my, my buddy, and I hitchhiked into, into town and uh, worked my way back. So it was humbling uh, to make the decision to stop. I planned the trip for about a year. Um, And it took a little time to work through the emotions uh, around that. You know, to feel them completely. To feel that human frailty. The little subtle measures of, you know, I had all the intellectual reasons why. It's all okay, you know, you're just an old guy, you did the best you could, etc. But still there was those little feelings of failure, a little shame, in there, that I, that I couldn't complete what I had set out to do and planned to do. Yeah. And so bringing kindness to that best that I was able. So, really, the, the trip was, in a large degree, practicing the acceptance of change, watching it. Change is pleasant, changes unpleasant. So, can you be with your changes? Can you be with them with kindness? Can you embrace all the emotions that come with them? There's a poem by uh, Charles Bukowski, one of my one of my favorites. He's a real rascal, and he writes this poem talking about changes and aging. It's called Two Nights Before My 72nd Birthday. Sitting here on a boiling hot night while drinking a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon after winning two hundred and thirty-two dollars at the track. There's not much I can tell you except if it weren't for my bad right leg I don't feel much different than I did thirty or forty years ago except that now I have more money and should be able to afford a decent burial. (laughs) Also, I drive better automobiles and have stopped carrying a switchblade. (laughs) I am still looking for a hero, a role model, but can't find one. I am no more tolerant of humanity than I ever was. I am not bored with myself and find that I am the only one I can turn to in a time of crisis. I've been ready to die for decades, and I've been practicing, polishing up for that end, but it's very hot tonight, and I can think of little but this fine Cabernet. That's gift enough for me. Sometimes I can't believe I've come this far. This has to be some kind of goddamn miracle. (laughs) Just another old guy blinking at the forces, smiling a little, as the cities tremble, and the left hand rises, clutching something real. It is kind of a goddamn miracle, this whole thing of being alive. How do we even fathom that? It's just so amazing. So over the course of the Buddha's teaching, he gave discourse after discourse. And one of them which is one of the most important One really spells out the... the kind of paints the practice for us. And it's, it's already been mentioned, the Satipantana Sutta. And in it, he's asking us to examine our experience carefully. And very importantly in it, and pointedly, to pay particular attention to become intimate with how this lived experience changes, both internally and externally. In the sutta, he encourages us, just like you've been encouraged, to become mindful of the changes in the body, the breath, the postures, the activities of the day. There's other meditations in there. uh, the anatomical parts, the four elements. There's meditating on a decaying corpse. We'll probably get to that on Friday. (laughs) And he asks us to become uh, mindful of the changes in feeling tone, that, that that felt sense of the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral that comes with everything we experience through our senses. It's not anything we're trying to get rid of. It comes with it. It's, it's important to begin to, to know that, because it's a key point. We can either go on to clinging and suffering from there, or we can just notice, ah, oh, pleasant, unpleasant. And in that suthi, he's asking us to become mindful of the, the kind of functions of the heart-mind, the emotions, thoughts, and the, what, what, what can be called the mental contents. Wes talked about the hindrances. We've been talking about the Four Noble Truths in various ways. And there's other, other kind of mental contents that, that he's asking us to pay attention to the changes. To see change, to feel change, to internalize the truth of change throughout this lived experience. Nothing is standing still. It's all bubbling along. So why do this? You know, some of this isn't so much fun, you know? Paying attention to old age, old age sickness, death, loss—yuck! I mean, who wants to see those changes? Well, the reason that the Buddha aims us this way: number one, it's true. You know, I challenge you to think of something that's permanent. You know, find it. You know, something in you—maybe your, your thoughts, your emotions, your body—you know, your body. Maybe something outside. See, see what you can find. I had a teacher challenge me to do that. You know, Go, you know, walk around. Think, find something permanent. Come back and tell me. You know? And second, if, if you get the part of this that everything is moving, kind of the shifting sands of creation, if you can get that, maybe you won't try to hold on so tight to the things you like. Because you know, you started internalizing, it's going to change. And likewise, maybe you won't thrash around so much trying to push away things you don't like. Because you start to get it. They're going to change also. And thirdly, with the direct experience of kind of feeling this phenomenon of change, you more directly get to experience the nature of self. You get to explore. Is it solid? Is it continuous? Is it separate than everything else? Or is it some conglomerate of activities? Various phenomena arising and passing away, conveniently called Pat, Andrea, Wes, Terry, Joanna, you know? So we get to explore through paying attention to change, well, what is this self? There's a German monk, uh, his name's Analia. He's a terrific monk scholar, practitioner and scholar. And he's written this book called Patana, The Direct Path to Realization. And it is now a classic in a Buddhist scholarship. And it's dense in some parts, and, but it's, it's a beautiful work. But he sums it up, and he sums up the whole practice at the end in four words. You ready? These four words, the whole practice. Keep calmly knowing change. Keep calmly knowing change. That's our challenge. This uh, from Pema Chodron. Permanence is the goodness of reality. It's the goodness of reality. Impermanence is the goodness of reality. Just as the four seasons are in continual flux, winter changing to spring, to summer, to autumn, just as day becomes night, light becoming dark, becoming light again, and in the same way, everything is constantly evolving. Impermanence is the essence of everything. It is babies becoming children, then teenagers, then adults, then old people, and somewhere along the way, dropping dead. Impermanence is meeting and parting. It is falling in love and falling out of love. Impermanence is bittersweet like buying a new shirt and years later finding it as part of a patchwork quilt. People have no respect for impermanence. We take no delight in it. In fact, we despair of it. We regard it as pain and we resist it. Somehow in the process of trying to deny that things are always changing, we lose our sense of the sacredness of life. We tend to forget that we are part of the natural scheme of things. And words attributed to the Buddha, it is the nature of all things to arise and pass away. Happy are those who can live with this wisdom. It is the nature of all things to arise and pass away. Happy are those who can live with this wisdom. Buddha was no dummy. He knew there was a big difference between intellectually knowing this and internalizing it. And that there's a very important shift that he encouraged moving from the cognitive to the experiential. And the Buddha also had a really vast, infinite, compassionate heart. And he understood the fear that his students had with some of these harder truths of nature, aging, sickness, death, loss. He understood the natural arising of fear in response to these phenomena. But he also knew that the level of these fears in his students affected the energetic quality of their whole system. If there's, a, if there's a tremendous amount of fear around this, it tends to sap energy, sap creativity, sap the capacity of the heart to stay open in terms of being with your own suffering and the suffering of others. And that if those fears could be reduced, even a little bit, that's a breath of fresh air. It's like putting a weight down. Can you imagine what that's like to kind of loosen from some of those more basic fears? And so, as a help in cooling those fears and the other associated emotions that come with those, he offered and encouraged his students to practice a particular practice. Called the five daily recollections, and he said there are these five facts that one should reflect on often. Whether one is a woman or a man, lay or ordained, which five? And we'll do a little we'll do a little reflection, uh, but first I want to just just say a few words about my experience with the working with these five daily recollections. And some of you are probably already working with them. Um, and you don 't have to write them down i 'll put them up on the board. Uh, I, I think I started doing them maybe fifteen years ago, and I do them almost every day, some days I forget when i 'm meditating. Uh, but it has significantly reduced uh, my fear. I really think that they play that, that reflecting on these has really helped in that arena. Um, And I don't ordinarily teach this uh, to new students uh, because they can be challenging. But all of you that are new here, you're obviously special. You've come, you've jumped in the deep end of this pool doing a 10-day intensive, so I don't hesitate. Um, That being said, if as we do this reflection, uh, you find the resistance to this is becoming... uh, Unmanageable, and you're feeling a that this may be triggering a trauma reaction of some some sort. Just just back off. Meditate on your breath or something pleasant, um, and just and just not not participate. So I'm going to say these recollections uh, one by one. And uh, so get in a comfortable uh, meditative position. And close your eyes and take some full breaths, full inhale, full exhale. Father Thomas Keating talks about the, uh, what he calls the practice of consent which is basically turning toward and embodying the truth. And that's what these, these little recollections are. So I'll repeat each of them several times. And just allow it to affect you. I am of the nature to age and decay. I haven't gotten beyond aging and decay. allow that to settle into the body allow it in if you can allow it to affect you I'm of the nature to age and decay I haven't gotten beyond aging and decay maybe even visualizing yourself aging see yourself older than you are much older Are there any any emotions that might arise? Allow those emotions into the sunlight. And if you're able, bring forward a loving friendliness to greet the arising emotion. So we like to say, attend and befriend. bringing a tenderness to anything that arises. I'm of the nature to age and decay. I have not gotten beyond aging and decay. Second one. I am of the nature to become ill or injured. I have not gotten beyond illness or injury. You might picture yourself in a medical office, hearing the words, I am of the nature to become ill or injured. I haven't gotten beyond illness or injury. Allow it to affect you. And then meet whatever may arise with tenderness. And the third one, which you can imagine, I am of the nature to die. I haven't gotten beyond death. Many of you have been with people who have died. Is it possible to imagine your last exhale? I am of the nature to die. I have not gotten beyond death. I am of the nature to die. I haven't gotten beyond death. And the fourth one, my personal favorite. Everything dear and delightful to me will change and vanish. Everything dear and delightful to me will change and vanish. My body, my health, my loved ones, my dog, my garden, everything will change and vanish. That one's kind of a summation of the first three in a way. If you're able, allow it to affect you. attend and befriend whatever emotions arise. We're connecting with nature. And the fifth one's a little different. It has to do with cause and effect. I am the heir to my actions. I am related to my actions. I am supported by my actions. Everything I think, say, or do, that I will inherit. Cause and effect. I am the heir to my actions. I am related to my actions. I am supported by my actions. Everything I think, say, or do, that I will inherit. Okay, open your eyes. So that's a little exploration into uh, a practice that I've personally found really helpful and numbers of my students have come to really savor and enjoy, although at first it may seem really difficult. And sometimes I'll just practice one of them for a month or so. Sometimes I'll do all of them. Right now, currently, I'm doing all of them for the last few months for some reason. And like I said, that, uh, that fourth one is my favorite. Everything dear and delightful to me will change and vanish, speaking the truth. And the core of the practice that you've undertaken is turning toward and directly experiencing the truth. Sometimes we have to titrate that because it's too much for us. But that's our practice. So, this exploring of impermanence, anicca, really points out the truth of nature. And it does offer freedom. Nietzsche teaches you that there's no use grabbing on clinging to anything. So you learn to not grip so hard. We're not perfect at this. But maybe we grip a little less and we suffer a little less. You learn to let go more into the flow more into the beauty of this creation, this bubbling, frothing with life creation. Actually learn to enjoy the ride a little bit, surf the wave. And Anicca helps you to come to a better understanding of the selfless nature of this creation and maybe come to even enjoy this magical cascade, this this mysterious magical cascade of thoughts, emotions, sensations, without feeling so desperate about it, without feeling so much ownership to these sensations, these thoughts, these emotions. And as you watch over and over this internal change rolling on and on and on, Maybe you can ease up a little bit and, and not feel so driven to defend and promote this thing you call a self, a me. That's changing moment by moment. It's not fixed or solid. And in the most poignant way, Impermanence points you to appreciating the preciousness of this creation. To really savor this moving world, this world that's never in the same spot for a moment. I mean, the truth of impermanence tells you nothing remains the same. And because of that, nothing or anyone can be taken for granted. when you're awake to a Nietzsche, when you look into the eyes of your your loved ones, you realize how precious this moment is and that one of these moments is going to be the last moment that you have with them. In that moment, when you recognize that you are awake, you are present, fully alive, And you know, the small stuff slides away. The natural love, the tenderness comes forward. The separation dissolves. That's the beauty of change, knowing it, appreciating it. So I want to close uh, with a poem by Hafiz. It's called Deepening the Wonder. Death is a favor to us, but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in a tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks and as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. Let's just sit for a moment. we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. Thanks for your attention. We have about a half hour for walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.